Well, good morning, church family. Excited about baptism in a little bit. That's an awesome thing to partake of, just hearing God's life-changing power in people's lives and in their story and how we get to be a part of God's story. I'm excited about that. Today, as we continue on in our year of the Bible, thinking about what we've read in the last week, and really we're in a part of our reading plan where we're, we're hopping around a little bit between like Psalms and Proverbs and Kings and all these areas, uh, tying together David's life and then Solomon's life and Psalms and Proverbs, the connection that those two books uh, tend to have with those two individuals. Now, this morning, I want to ask a fun little question. Just think to yourself, what if today, everybody who came here, we decided to just give $10,000? Just think for a moment. Now, the budget, we probably don't have that, but to give everyone present $10,000, so that probably wouldn't be a wise decision for us, but just for kicks and giggles, let's pretend that we gave everyone here $10,000, and you start going, okay, wow. Uh, I mean, attendance would probably be pretty high next week, but uh, we're not doing that, so... But pretending that you had just random new $10,000 out of nowhere, you get to start going, playing this game of, hey, what do I do with that $10,000? Well, some of you would maybe um, buy a new television. I mean, you could get a pretty incredible television, maybe a few for that price. Maybe you would buy whatever new toy that you've been longing for other than a television. Maybe you would use that money to help you buy uh, a new car. Maybe you would start thinking about that dream vacation that you've been looking for, that maybe this could help you accomplish that. Maybe you would put it straight into savings. Maybe you'd take that $10,000 and throw it in the stock market, which is really stable right now. And <laughs> maybe you would give it away. Maybe you would practice all sorts of generosity with it. See, many people would do many different things with that $10,000, but let's, let's up the ante a little bit. Let's get past $10,000. Let's pretend that you found the infamous fictional genie's lamp. When you rub the lamp, the genie comes out, and you've got your three wishes. We start asking, okay, what would we ask for? Now, of course, there has to be some rules, and we're going to base these rules on the assumptions of the most scientifically accurate presentation we have regarding the laws of genies and bottles, which would be Aladdin. That, of course, you can't kill anyone, you can't make people fall in love, you can't bring anyone back from the dead, and, of course, no wishing for more wishes. So if you had those and you're starting to think, what would I ask for? What are the three things? Really, the root of the question is, what are the three things that you think are most valuable? What do you think are most valuable? And so I had a little bit of fun and got on the internet and Googled what people would ask for. Some uh, just tomfoolery, some wisdom, some good, some not so good. Here's a few things I found of what people said they would ask for with the genie. One person said, I'd ask for a million dollars a year deposited into mine and my spouse's bank account. I can understand that. I, that. That makes sense to me. But I think they're not asking big enough, as is evidenced by another person who said, I would ask for five gazillion dollars. <laughs> I'm thinking, if you're going for five gazillion, why not six? Why not ten? I mean, come on. Is gazillion even? I don't know. Another person said, to be freed from all present and future responsibilities. I feel like that's one of the less noble asks. 
One person said, a lifetime of free travel expenses and food. Hey, that sounds awesome. I like that one. Sign me up for that. Another more noble person said they would ask for the destruction of COVID-19. Pretty fresh uh, understanding as to why they would ask for that. Another person said they would ask for everyone in the world having love and compassion for everyone in the world. I think that idea has long been coined as world peace, right? Another person said they would ask for all the needs of their loved ones met. I think that's a noble uh, ask. Many of us would ask something like that. Someone said that they would want to live a few hundred years. It's interesting, though, they didn't want to live forever, just a few hundred years. I don't know. Like they like this life, but not that much. Another person, here we go, said cheesecake. I mean, I had some on Friday, but I don't think I put that in my top three. Another person said they would ask for Texas to actually have four seasons. As someone who moved here from Texas, I can understand that and say amen. Another person said they would ask for a lie detector. Says something about maybe their life experience, maybe about our society, why they would feel that that would be one of the most three valuable things you could ask for. A lie detector, and they said, or a soulmate detector. Wouldn't that be nice? Just beep, 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 beep. Be convenient. Someone else, all you pet lovers out there, one person said they would ask that dogs could have a long, as long of a life expectancy as humans. And my personal favorite that I found, the ability to produce any cut of steak at any desired temperature at will. <laughs> Amen. Amen. Medium rare tenderloin. Be the life of the party. Watch this. So what would you ask for? Moreover, what do you think is most valuable? Apparently, some people really value cheesecake and steak. While others value the welfare of their family, others value finances, others would ask for health. See, different people value different things different ways for different reasons. Today, we're going to be talking about really what's most valuable. In our Bible reading plan, we find ourselves in 1 Kings on the deathbed of Israel's great King David. On his deathbed, we'll go to 1 Kings chapter 2. And in 1 Kings chapter 2, we see David on his deathbed talking to his appointed son Solomon, who would take over as king after withstanding a coup from one of his brothers. David's on his deathbed, and he commissions Solomon. And this is going to sound really familiar to many of the things that many of the patriarchs have already said to whoever was going to succeed them. 1 Kings chapter 2 and verse 1 when David's time to die drew near, he commanded Solomon his son, saying, I am about to go the way of all the earth. Be strong and show yourself a man, and keep the charge of the Lord your God, walking in his ways and keeping his statutes, his commandments, his rules, and his testimonies, as it is written in the law of Moses, that you may prosper in all that you do and wherever you turn, that the Lord may establish his word that he spoke concerning me, saying, if your sons pay close attention to their way, to walk before me in faithfulness with all their heart and with all their soul, sounds like the Shema, you shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. Notice, take note that each of the men of the patriarchy of Old Testament 
that we've processed through. Think about David. What he's saying right here to Solomon is essentially different wording a little bit here and there, but it's the same thing, the same type of thing that Abraham said to Isaac, that Isaac said to Jacob, Jacob said to his sons, Moses said to Joshua as he's passing the torch to him, and now David is saying the same things to his son Solomon, who would be the next king of Israel. See, these people on their deathbed, when they're wholly aware of what's most important and also wholly aware of what's really trivial, deathbed wisdom says, stay faithful to God. Like when you're on the deathbed, and I've said this before, but, but if you've ever been around someone who they are aware they are at the end of their life, and they're having these meaningful conversations where they're trying to either uh, make reconciliation between family members that they had uh, frustrations or estrangement with or offense, that they're wanting to make those things right, and then beyond that, they're wanting to make sure that they tell their family or their loved ones, their friends, some meaningful things and laugh and share in memories together. Oftentimes we hear things where someone knows their end is coming and they have a clarity that they had never had before on what really matters. And we shouldn't just skim over the fact that all of these men of God who Hebrews 11 would call faithful, all of them in the Old Testament when getting ready to pass the baton to the next generation are essentially summarized in saying, Stay faithful to God. That's the generational refrain of godly people to the next generation, saying stay faithful to God. Well, we find in Solomon's story that unfortunately, he's one of the kings who starts really well and then ends really badly. See, in 1 Kings chapter 3, we see Solomon's uh, see Solomon break God's law pretty early by taking a pagan wife. He made a, a marital alliance with Egypt by marrying one of Pharaoh's daughters, which was against the Torah, against the law. And later in life, his apparent sex addiction drives him to take 700 wives and 300 concubines, a thousand women, which ends up being his downfall. That leads to the destruction of his, of his rule and his reign because he starts taking the influence of these women's gods into the kingdom and into his life, into his worship, into his practice. But rather than talking about his downfall today, we're going to look at the staple of Solomon's historic identity. Let's flip over a couple of pages to chapter 3. 1 Kings chapter 3, we're going to read verses 1 through 15. It says, Solomon made a marriage alliance with Pharaoh, king of Egypt. He took Pharaoh's daughter and brought her into the city of David until he had finished building his own house and the house of the Lord and the wall around Jerusalem. The people were sacrificing at the high places, however, because no house had yet been built for the name of the Lord. If you're wondering about high places, essentially that means places of worship, high places, holy places, similar things there. And the statement here is that there was not a house built for the Lord. We know Solomon is going to eventually build God's temple in Jerusalem. But before he does that, there is all these random high places from the former kingdoms um, and the gods that they worship, their temples. And so because there wasn't that official house for God, the people of Israel as well as Solomon are worshiping God in these high places. Verse three, Solomon loved the Lord. 
walking in the statutes of David his father. Only he sacrificed and made offerings at the high places. And the king went to Gibeon to sacrifice there. For that was where the great or for that was the great high place. We know that apart from the ark which David brought back to a certain city, this is where most of the elements from the tabernacle were at, the high place in Gibeon. Solomon used to offer a thousand burnt offerings on the altar. At Gibeon the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream by night, and God said, Ask what I shall give you. And Solomon said, You have shown great steadfastness and love to your servant David, my father, because he walked before you in faithfulness and righteousness and an uprightness of heart toward you. And you have kept for him this great and steadfast love and have given him a son to sit on his throne this day. And now, O Lord my God, you have made your servant king in place of David, my father. Although I am but a little child, I do not know how to go out or come in, and your servant is in the midst of your people whom you have chosen, a great people, too many to be numbered or counted for multitude. Give your servant, therefore, an understanding mind to govern your people that I may discern between good and evil. For who is able to govern this, your great people? Verse 10, it pleased the Lord that Solomon had asked this. And God said to him, because you have asked this and have not asked for yourself long life or riches or steak or cheesecake. Oh, wait, that's not in there. Or the life of your enemies, but you have asked for yourself understanding to discern what is right. Behold, I now do according to your word. Behold, I give you a wise and discerning mind so that so that none like you has been before you, and none like you shall rise after you. I give you also what you have not asked, both riches and honor, so that no other king shall compare with you all your days. And if you walk in my ways, keep my statutes and my commandments, as your father David walked, then I will strengthen your days. And Solomon awoke, and behold, it was a dream. Then he came to Jerusalem and stood before the ark of the covenant of the Lord and offered up burnt offerings and peace offerings and made a feast for all his servants. Here we see one thing. Wisdom is, more, or, or wisdom is worth more than earthly possessions, earthly pleasures, and earthly dreams. Again, if you think about the list of all the things that people would have asked for from the genie, they're saying the things that they think would be most valuable if somehow we had the ability to just ask for anything and it would be granted. And Solomon, because of his love for God and his faithfulness to God, apparently at this time, is in Gibeon worshiping and it pleased the Lord. So that night God gives him the dream and asks him that very question. Solomon, what do you want? What would you have the Lord give you? And Solomon responds in praise and, and gratitude first, saying, you have been so faithful, so good to my father David, and now his son Solomon is given rule over this great, mighty kingdom that is your people, he says. It's too great to number. I'm this young guy. How am I supposed to know how to lead these people? Give your servant an understanding mind and heart, basically saying, give me wisdom, please. He asks for wisdom, showing that it is worth more than earthly possessions, that it is worth more than earthly pleasures, that it is worth more than earthly dreams or aspirations. God offers Solomon this incredible opportunity. Solomon responds in gratitude, 
And we need to really take note, pay attention to what it says in verse 10, and God is pleased by this request. Man, if nothing else is to be noted from this passage regarding the value of wisdom, it should be noted to us that wisdom is valuable simply by the fact that it pleased God that Solomon asked for it. Solomon said, God, give me wisdom, and God was pleased. He was happy that that's what Solomon asked for. Don't we really? Isn't this what we want? We want to please God. See, when we think about what's most valuable, we tend to think, well, what can help me most? Or what can give me the most pleasure? But what if we started basing value upon what gave God pleasure? What if what we valued in our life was what not could bring us the most pleasure or bring us the most use, but what gave God pleasure, what pleased God with the way that we lived, and what gave him the most use for his kingdom? What if we change the way that we view this life and what is valuable, not based on what it can do for us? Ask not what you can do. <laughs> really, you could take that principle and flip it into kingdom and go, man, it's not about what God can do for me. What can I do for him? What offers him pleasure? Solomon, did you hear in his prayer recognizing like, man, I've been given the responsibility to steward and lead your people. He said, your people, this great nation, help. Give me wisdom. And it pleased the Lord. So immediately we see the value in wisdom in that when we long for wisdom, when we want it, especially for accomplishing what God put before us, for Solomon it was leading his people. For us it is um, serving one another and, and doing gospel work of the Great Commission, going and making disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that Jesus commanded. That as we carry those commissions we're mindful, we should be mindful, just like Solomon. Men, God has placed me in a position to where I can't do what I need to do unless he gives me wisdom. Like even for us, like the, the terrifying aspect, we don't have the same seat as Solomon where it's scary leading God's people. But we have many similar commissions from God that are scary in the sense that the idea of finally having the courage to have that conversation with your coworker, to finally, that you've been having that conversation, building relationships with your neighbors, and finally you feel like, okay, I've built the relational capital, and now today is the day that I feel like the Lord's leading me or prompting me to step out in boldness and encourage with the Holy Spirit to, to say something to my neighbors about the love of God, to finally tell them the truth about Jesus or ask them about it. That's a terrifying thing to so many people. It's not easy. And we should recognize, just like Solomon, that, man, if we're going to accomplish what God wants us to accomplish, what he has commissioned and assigned us to do, and even beyond great commission, but in the nuance of all of our lives, if we're going to be faithful husbands and wives, if we're going to honor God in our marriages, if we're going to faithfully raise children to love, serve, follow, and worship God throughout their lives, we need the wisdom of God. If we're going to steward our finances in a way that pleases and honors God, we need the wisdom of God. If we're going to live in this society and be a blessing to the community that we live in, we need the wisdom of God all areas of our lives we need the wisdom of God 
Solomon recognized that out of all the things he could dream up to ask God, riches, health, power, pleasure, each having their own measure of worth, they paled in comparison to the weightier value of wisdom. So much so that in Proverbs, a book that Solomon wrote almost the entire book, in Proverbs, we see Solomon begins that entire book by stating this call to wisdom and knowledge. Let's flip to Proverbs chapter 1 this morning. This is a book that's, that Solomon wrote attempting to pass all the wisdom that God had given him onto his children, to his descendants, to the people of Israel, and thank God to us today. We see this call to wisdom in Proverbs chapter 1, verse 1. The Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel, to know wisdom and instruction, to understand words of insight, to receive instruction in wise dealing, in righteousness, justice, and equity, to give prudence to the simple, knowledge and discretion to the youth. Let the wise hear and increase in learning, and the one who understands obtain guidance, to understand a proverb and a saying, the words of the wise and their riddles. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. If you jump ahead to the next chapter, Proverbs chapter 2, let's look at not only the call to wisdom, but now chapter 2 is going to tell us again about the value of wisdom. If we skip ahead, Proverbs chapter 2 verses 1 through 10, my son, if you receive my words and treasure, pay attention to how much value and worth phrases are dropped in this passage. Treasure. He says, if you treasure up my commandments with you, making your ear attentive to wisdom and inclining your heart to understanding. Yes, if you call out for insight and raise your voice for understanding, if you seek it like silver, that's a, a value, a worth phrase to them, and search for it as for what? Hidden treasures. How would we search for hidden treasures? With, with persistence. Looking for it. Verse 5, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. For the Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth come knowledge and understanding. He stores up sound wisdom for the upright. He is a shield to those who walk in integrity, guarding the paths of justice and watching over the ways of his saints. Then you will understand righteousness and justice and equity, every good path. For wisdom will come into your heart and knowledge will be pleasant to your soul. Solomon writes in his wisdom, Proverbs for his sons, ultimately for all of us to study and glean from and to live out. Recognizing the incredible benefits that come with living a godly life and possessing a heart of wisdom and understanding. See, wisdom and knowledge or wisdom and understanding are two sides of the same coin in the book of Proverbs. How many times we see in this book, they're presented together, wisdom and knowledge or wisdom and understanding. See, see knowledge is understanding the truth. This is gaining and processing information. What do we know about this world? What do we know about God? What do we know about us, ourselves, as individuals, as, as a collective unit? What do we understand about other people and our relationship to them? That is knowledge, understanding the truth, who God is, what this world is, how does it work, who we are. 
And then beyond that, wisdom is the skill of applying said knowledge rightly. You've got knowledge and understanding, and there are plenty of people in this world who have tons and tons of knowledge, tons and tons of understanding. People who know the Bible way better than you and me possibly. There are people who are Bible scholars, people who know all sorts of things, have a, a, a vault of knowledge and understanding, but lack the wisdom of how to rightly apply that knowledge and understanding. The two go hand in hand. You can't have wisdom without knowledge and understanding. It's necessary. They're two sides of the same coin. See, not only can we do things, we don't want to ask. Not only do we want to ask, how can we do things? How does God want us to live is really what we want to get to. Not how can we, knowledge, but how should we, wisdom. See, knowledge is just what. Wisdom is how. Knowledge is what. Wisdom is how. I remember, you know, I have about 17 years of media experience under my belt. In 2003, I went to college for video production, and I had my hands in video and media from 2012, uh, or I'm sorry, 2003, up until last year. <laughs> and when that ha all that time, I had to train other people. I had to train students. I had to train volunteers, team members on how to do video and how to edit. And what's really easy is teaching people how to edit in the sense of Here's how you cut. Here's how you reel. Here's how you copy and paste. Here's how you adjust the speed and duration. What was really hard was teaching someone how to think as an editor. Because I could teach any of you how to copy and paste and how to move all the elements around in a timeline. What's really difficult is teaching someone how to think as an editor, how to understand, yeah, you could put that filter on that shot, but it's going to scream amateur if you do. Yeah, you could copy and paste here, and you could do slow-mo on that, but the frame rate of that makes the shutters look really bad, and it's not going to look good. All the understanding helps you learn from someone else with wisdom how to apply all those things that you know, how to process and how to walk out all the information and knowledge you have, which is why the pursuit is not just knowledge. It's not just information. What we want from God is wisdom. Notice in verse 5 of that chapter 2 that we just read, it said something that was also mentioned in chapter 1, that you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. Proverbs 9 and 10, we'll put it up on the screen, says the exact same thing. Proverbs 9 and 10 says this, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. See, we have to recognize that if we want wisdom, if we want to live this life with wisdom, it starts with understanding the fear of God. Understanding and being mindful of the fact that we will one day stand before that God. Understanding that, that he is to be revered and he is to be loved and delighted in, but he is also to be seen as the God who is all-powerful. I mentioned this a couple of weeks ago, and I'll just cite it again. The fear of my father, who loved me very much, and I never doubted his love for me, but the fear of my father also kept me from making a lot of stupid decisions that Stephen wanted to make. There are things I wanted to do that would have been detrimental to me had I not feared my father. 
feared the idea that I would have to give an account for the bad decision I made before him. That if I could get away with it, that may be one thing, but the idea that maybe dad would find out and I would have to give an account to him, that fear of my father who loved me, who I delighted in, enjoyed spending time with my dad, going fishing and doing whatever with him. But at the same time, I still feared him. That fear was good for me. Proverbs says over and over that the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. See, the fear of God, that humble awareness that we live in his beautiful creation as his prized creation under the reign of his domain and that we will all stand before him one day, that's the beginning of wisdom. I think about Psalm 139, which was also part of our reading plan this last week. The psalmist, you can kind of hear this process through as you go through Psalm 139. Basically, he was saying, Lord, you know everything about me. You know my innermost being, my sitting down, my rising up, my coming and going, my laying down. He goes on to say, there is nowhere I can go from you. You see all. He said, anywhere I go, you're there. And then he goes on to say, you even formed me in my mother's womb. You wrote every day of my life before there was yet one of them. And how does he respond to externally declaring these truths about God? He responds with awestruck wonder. He erupts with, such thoughts are far too wonderful for me. When he's sitting here saying, God, you know everything about me. You're everywhere I am. There's nothing about me that's hidden from you. He goes, man, such thoughts are too wonderful for me. I can't, I can't even. He's saying, I can't even process this. I don't even know what to do with that information. It's too wonderful for me. He goes on to say similarly, how precious are your thoughts of me, O God. How great are the sum of them. And then this awestruck wonder then overflows with this, from the praise to this hatred of wickedness. Like recognizing how vast, how wonderful, how awesome is, uh, God is, the psalmist then starts turning that, that, that motivates a hatred for wickedness. And he says, oh, that you would slay the wicked, oh God. And he starts ranting about wicked people and wicked ways. And then he remembers the truth that he said moments before when he said, you are acquainted with all my ways. It makes me think about Hebrews where it says, there is, we are all naked before the Lord. There is nothing hidden from his eyes. He sees all. And this psalmist who's sitting here passionately upset about the wicked and wicked ways, and as he's venting about it, he then thinks about, oh yeah, a moment ago I said that you're acquainted with all my ways and starts recognizing maybe what we talked about last week in Romans 3, that every single one of us have sin. And he starts going, search me, O God. You know what? Search me, O God, and see if there be any wicked way in me. It's like this awareness of God's hatred and the incompatibility of sin and wickedness makes him go, oh man, you know what, God? Search me and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me into life everlasting. See, the fear of God, spurred on by the knowledge of God, led to humility and repentance before God and this laying himself 
laying ourselves before God to just perpetually say, man, God, just search me. See if there's anything in my heart. See if there's anything in my motives. See if there's anything in my life, in my habits, in my routines, in my actions, in my speech. God, search me. If there's something in my life that's not pleasing to you, help me see it and lead me into life everlasting. See, the beauty of the wisdom books given to us by Solomon, but not only the wisdom books, really all of Scripture, the beauty of it is that it is given to us from an eternal God who created all things, who designed how all things function, who knows all things, who is upholding and sustaining all things. He gave to us the eternal view of wisdom with how we are to live in this life and in this world. How many of you parents, or maybe it doesn't even, you don't even have to be a parent, maybe you've said it to your kids or someone else's kids in, in deep conversation where you've said, when you're older, you'll understand. Right? Where kids are upset about something, and you say, honey, sweetie, listen, someday you're gonna look back at today and chuckle about how mad you were about this. Listen, when you get older, it'll make sense to you. When you're older, you'll understand why mommy and daddy won't want you doing that. When you're older, you're going to say the same things that I said, right? And the child is always going, you don't know. You don't know me. You don't understand. In their passionate naivety, they're wrong. Because they don't have the wisdom that comes with life. They don't have the ability to think long-term because they've only lived short-term. And therefore, their vision and their passion is short-term. That's why all their arguments with, with my two daughters when they're down the hall and I hear them, no, mine, mine, give it to me. I had it first. I want it. No capacity to think, you know what? I could let her play with that for a few minutes and JoJo's gonna get over it in 30 seconds and go do something else and then I could have it for 30 minutes. They don't have the capacity, the frame of mind to think long-term. They only live short-term, short-sighted, short passion. Wisdom is given to us from the word of God to say, hey kids, hey young people, hey those of you whose life on this earth is a vapor, Live with eternity in mind. Don't get so hung up on the toy. Stop fighting with your sister because this is fleeting. We are here as pilgrims, eternal beings who are living a temporary life in a temporary world. Proverbs is screaming it. Psalms is declaring it. The whole Bible beginning to end is trying to fight against the training of our world and our society to say, live in the moment, be here, be now, do whatever makes you happy. That's the toddler view. That's the short-sighted view. The biblical, eternal God's perspective is delay gratification. Look forward to that day where you truly will live forever. Make decisions now that you would have wished you had made. How many times do we look at our lives and we go, man, if I could go back to 16-year-old Stephen and say, hey, don't sell your 86 Ford Bronco to buy a 2001 Mustang, you idiot. That one's way more practical. And someday you're going to move to Wisconsin and wish that you didn't have a rear-wheel drive Mustang, Mustang that can't drive in the snow. 
Like if I could go back to 16-year-old Stephen, I would have said, don't do that. Instead, save that money and use it for wiser things. I'd go back to 18-year-old Stephen and say, don't sign up for the credit card, you idiot. (laughs) What would you say? What would you say if you could go back to yourself? What if God gave us the wisdom of God with an eternal perspective from his word to say to us, hey, I'm trying to tell you things so that you can change your view, renew your mind, to see your life from an eternal perspective and not from the here and now toddler perspective. That there are things on your deathbed that you're going to look back and go, you know what, I should have invested more of my time, my money, my possessions, my everything that God had given me. I wish I would have put more into the kingdom. I wish I would have done more missional work. I wish I would have told more people about Jesus. Never on the deathbed do you hear, I wish I would have had one more car. I wish I would have bought one more fancy toy. And listen, I'm not saying that those, are, those things are evil. They're neutral. Those things, whether or not they're evil or good is the heart of the individual who owns them or is owned by them. God has given us his word to combat the way that we are prone to think in our short-sighted toddler mentality in this life that we feel like, man, we've got time. Life is long. I'm only 37, but I'm already this morning going, how is it almost June? When I remember the third grade, I was like, Christmas will never come. (laughs) Now today, I'm like, tomorrow's gonna be Christmas. Like the older you get, you know, the older you get, the more you are saying it goes so fast. The older you get, the more you agree with scripture, life is but a vapor. Here today, gone tomorrow. We need the wisdom of God to live in this life in a way that pleases and honors him and in a way that when we get to deathbed, if God gives us the grace of see that coming, that's the other thing is we don't even know if we have tomorrow. So what are we doing today to live in light of that day? See, Proverbs and Ecclesiastes really all of scripture are given to us not only as the wisdom of an old, old wise sage, what they would tell us from their life experience, but also from what the eternal, infinitely wise God would tell us. See, it would be of significant benefit to us to ask ourselves, what are the things that I might find of value later and my short-sightedness might be causing me to neglect or ignore now? What are the things that down the road wisdom would have said, make this decision now? And then further, what are the things that are of eternal value that my temporal vision is causing me to neglect or ignore? What are things that are of eternal value and worth, things that will not go away, that things that rust and moth will not destroy? What are the things that I can do with my life now that will have eternal significance, eternal impact, make an eternal difference, eternal fruit? What are those things that maybe my, my temporal, short-sighted, toddler view of this world is drawing me to just fleeting pleasures to neglect eternal pleasures? It's the same thing 
I was going to go there for time's sake, I won't, but Ecclesiastes, I encourage you to read it sometimes as 12 chapters of Solomon, the wise man who had it all, accomplished it all, had more wealth than any, had all the pleasures of a thousand wives, had accomplished and expanded the kingdom and, and did everything that he could have wanted to do. And he takes 12 chapters in the book of Ecclesiastes to say, vanity. It's all vanity. I had it all. I did it all. I accomplished it all. I sought it all and had it all. And it's all meaningless. It's all vanity. He's saying, all the things that we pursue in this life are this. pacifiers. From an eternal perspective, the root of the idea that plagues so many of our hearts and tempts us over and over and over, even as believers, even as you get older, even as you get wiser, the idea comes floating along, oh, if only I had this. If only I could accomplish that one thing. If only I could get that raise. If only I could get that promotion. If only my kids went pro. If only I could graduate. If only I could find that significant other. If only I could buy that house. If only pacifier, 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 pacifier. Which is why in Philippians 3, the Apostle Paul says, I've learned in whatever state I'm in to be content. I can do all these things through Christ who strengthens me because Paul understood that Jesus Christ was the greatest treasure of life. Echoing the gospel of Matthew chapter th uh, 13, one of my famous favorite verses, where it says the kingdom of God is like a treasure hidden in a field. And for joy over a man finding that treasure, for joy over what he found, he buries it, hides it, goes and sells everything he has so he can buy that field and gain the treasure. Following Jesus Christ is not just this life where we try to live this moral therapeutic deism, where we try to feel good about ourselves, try to be moral, try to be good, try to achieve and, and, and have our white picket fence with Lassie and our American dream. Again, things that are not evil but are neutral. Rather, that Jesus Christ is the treasure in the field that when you find him beyond mental ascent of, yeah, oh yeah, that's the guy who died on the cross, but when you see the infinite value and worth of knowing Jesus Christ, you act like Paul, you, where he says, all that stuff I once thought was so important, I count as rubbish, that I may gain Christ and know him. That, that Matthew 13, that we sell everything we have, that doesn't mean selling our homes, our cars, our shirts, whatever, but literally, I'm giving up everything I have to place all my eggs in the basket of Jesus. That's a basket we can count before it hatches because it's promised to us by the faithful God of all time. Remember that deathbed wisdom that was repeated to every one of these guys. What was it? Stay faithful to God. Stay faithful to God. Oh, that we could think for that day today. That we would seriously and genuinely ask ourselves, what are the things that that day I will have wished I would have done more of? What are the things on that day when I stand before the Lord that I'm going to look back at my life and go, 
I really wish I would have done more of that. I wish I would have done less of that. I wish I would have cared more about this and cared less about this. I wish I would have invested more of my time in this and less of it in this. So how do we grow in wisdom? Well, number one, we saw from Proverbs that we must learn the fear of God. Thinking about that day that we'll stand before him. Two, we study the word of God. How many times it was cited? The knowledge of the Holy One. If you went to Proverbs chapter 30, there's this ranting proverb of a guy who says he doesn't have wisdom. He's like, I'm more stupid than anyone, is what he says. And he says, I don't have insight, I don't have understanding, he said, nor do I have knowledge of the Holy One. And so to have wisdom, we must study, seek to know who God is. It's as we learn who he is, not who we want him to be, not who we think he is, but what does the word of God say he is? What does the word of God teach us about him? Helps us grow in wisdom. And thirdly, we ask God for wisdom. Just like Solomon, where he pleased the Lord by asking for wisdom, it's echoed again in James chapter one and verse five. It says, if any man lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives freely without reproach. And he goes on to say, but let him when he asks not doubt. Because if you doubt that God's gonna give it when you ask, you're like those who are tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine or the waves of the sea. Listen, ask God to give you wisdom. We need wisdom. You need wisdom, whatever it might be, no matter how significant or insignificant different roles and responsibilities you perceive to be in your life, we need the wisdom of God. So what is true wisdom? It's living in light of eternity. We have a core value here at our church. It's on the wall over here, out in the auditorium. I'm sorry, out in the entryway. This core value says we say yes to the greater things because we're called to live in light of eternity. There's a phrase I heard a pastor somewhere say one time. I can't remember who it was, so I can't credit it. But he said, we say no to things that we love so we can say yes to things that we love even more. We say no to things that we do love so we can say yes to things that we love even more. I love sports. I pretty much love all sports. I love watching them. I love playing them. And I used to play a lot of sports. And it came to a point where I got married and then had daughters, and it was like, I got to pick and choose. So now I'm just like, ah, I'll just play golf. And the other ones I, can't, I don't really have time for. If I'm going to be a faithful husband, faithful father, faithful pastor, I had to say no to things that I loved so I could say yes to things I love even more, like time with my daughters, time with my wife, time invested in accomplishing what God put me on this earth for. We say yes to the greater things because we are called to live in light of eternity. We say no to the pacifiers that, that are trying to lie to us and seduce us and tell us that that one other thing is going to finally make us happy. We say yes to the kingdom of God, the eternal pleasures of God. We say yes to his family, to his church, to his mission in this life. God, I, I thank you for your word that it is given to us to give us godly wisdom that we could know, have knowledge, have understanding, have insight. But Lord, by your grace and by the power of your Holy Spirit, that you would give us illumination, that we wouldn't just have knowledge and insight, but that we would have wisdom. We ask, we say yes to James chapter one. We ask you for wisdom. 
And we believe that we receive that. Give us, God, the wisdom to know our place in this world, to know who you are, to know where we stand with you, to know that you are true, that you are coming back, and that we want to be in right relationship with you. God, give us wisdom to be faithful as your people, as your children, to follow and serve you, to accomplish all that you set before us. Give us wisdom to say no to temptation, to say no to temporal worldly pleasures, and to say yes to your kingdom, to say yes to your work, to your mission. Say yes to all that you have set before us, God. We need your grace, your wisdom to do it. And again, God, as always, if there's anybody here who doesn't know you, I ask that you would give them the wisdom to see that this life is fleeting. We are not promised tomorrow. And nothing matters more than knowing you, recognizing our need for our Savior, repenting of our sins, and turning and placing our faith in Jesus Christ. I ask today if there's anyone here or hearing my voice, whether online or even watching this afterward, that doesn't know you, God, you would open their eyes to see that you are the treasure in the field, that you are worth giving up everything for, that we could gain you, know you, and live our lives being faithful to you, accomplishing your purposes. In Jesus' name, amen.